0: Hey, good morning. We're so glad you're here. So good to have Amy with us again and Josh leading us in worship. Uh, a few of those lyrics just kind of caught me even by surprise today as we bring our focus into maybe the bigger picture of what God is doing, that we would not lose the plot as we shared last week. It was so good to see some of you on Wednesday night. Uh, we had a little drive through dessert uh, event here at Castle Oaks And uh, we were just thrilled to see some of you face-to-face. And our hope is that we'll do another one of those soon or something like that so we can have some opportunities just to say hello. We've got some highlights of that. We'll show that at the end of the message. It's really the only way we can get you to stick through the end of the sermon. So anyway, when the sermon's over, we'll show that. Hey, let me say this as we get started. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And uh, I, I really honestly can't imagine another Mother's Day that's been more important in recent history. Uh, Some of the moms are working uh, in ways that they haven't ever before. Some of you are teaching. Uh, that you never never had any desire to be a homeschooler or a teacher, but now you're doing both at the same time. Some of you are trying to manage home and family and full-time careers. Uh, I just can't imagine what some of you are dealing with and the the stress and the pressure. And yet, even as we come to this Mother's Day, you can't even uh, go out to eat at a nice restaurant or something like that that we might normally do and celebrate in those ways. So my hope and my prayer is that today, uh, you and your family will make some plans Uh, for when things uh, open up more fully, that you can get out and celebrate. And uh, I also hope that today, my guess is what most of the moms might need or might want is just to be left alone. And so maybe you can work that out uh, in how you kind of get your day taken care of. Growing up, I really didn't understand what it meant, of course, as a young boy to be a mom. When I hit high school, I gained a little bit of an understanding. When I went away off to college, there was kind of another layer of thankfulness that kind of grew up in me as I realized what it took to do my own laundry and all those kinds of things. And then when I got married, of course, that even changed a little bit further. In fact, what I'm describing is that throughout my lifetime, especially when we had our own kids, Donna and I, my understanding of thankfulness toward my parents and my mom especially uh, was deeper and deeper and deeper. And now my mom uh, is 78. She'll turn 79 next month. And she's in a long-term care facility right now uh, that's locked down because of COVID-19. And even my dad can't get in to see her and she can't see him, they can, they can FaceTime. But it's of course ushered in this other season of uncertainty and, and that's tough, especially when you're as old as they are. Um, I got to FaceTime with my mom just a few weeks ago. Uh, they kind of made arrangements for that with a social worker in the facility. And as I was FaceTiming with mom, the kind of pictures came up. I got to see her for the first time in a while, and she saw me, and she said, what's that on your chin? And I said, don't you like it? And kind of pointed toward the camera a little bit. And, uh, but I said, it's gray. It's gray, mom. It's just like what's on your head. And she looked at me with a little uh, smirk and said, Philip, I'm not gray. I'm blonde. And so I've now decided this is blonde, so uh, thanks to my mom. She's uh, in a frail... Period of her life, and it's difficult to watch and uh, hard to know what the future will hold for mom and dad. But today I'm grateful and I'm thankful for who she is and who she was when I was growing up and how she raised me to know God. And uh, So we'll talk a little bit about that in the message, uh, this passage from Philippians will help get us there, and it kind of begins to open up a little bit of what's going on in Paul's personal life and the relationships that he has. and The things that he shares in this section of chapter 2, it's the last half of Philippians 2, gives us a glimpse into his, his life and his friendships and the people that he relied upon when he was going through difficult times. Now you remember, Philippians, Paul's under a lockdown, he's imprisoned in Rome, and so almost everything he says has a unique application to us right now. Because of the season that we're in, because of the time that we're dealing with these challenging difficulties, our hope is that what Paul says will speak deeply to where we are and that it will change even our perspective about things. So when we get into chapter 2, Paul says this, He says, if the Lord Jesus is willing, remember Paul's writing from prison to the church in Philippi, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Timothy's probably in Rome, Paul's probably in prison in Rome, so Timothy probably does get to visit Paul and maybe tend to some of Paul's needs, then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. Now, just the context, a little reminder of the history. Paul had been on a missionary journey to Philippi about 10 years before he was put in prison. And he established a church, new converts, and went off and did that all around the known world at that time. And then eventually Paul finds himself in this lockdown, this prison. He's brought up on charges. He's waiting trial. He doesn't know what the result of the trial will be. And Timothy is with him. Now that first trip to Philippi, Timothy, Timothy was with him as well. In fact, Timothy had joined him not long before. The book of Acts is really the second half of it. It's a story of three trips that Paul makes around the areas uh, close to and centered around Jerusalem and Europe and Asia. And when he makes these journeys and these trips, he's establishing churches along the way. In the very first trip, he makes a stop in a place called Lystra, a neighboring town, Derby, and in those areas he won a couple of converts that we'll hear about in just a moment. They were Timothy's mother and his grandmother. And somewhere between the first and second journey, Timothy becomes a believer in Jesus. And so Paul sees something unique in Timothy. He calls him his son in the faith a few times in Scripture. And so on the second journey, he takes Timothy with him. You might remember Silas is with him, Luke is with him, and they... Visit this little town of Philippi, establish the church. Now, ten years later, Paul's in prison, Timothy's in Rome, and Paul says, Oh, maybe, maybe I'll send Timothy to see you. Paul has some very unique feelings about Timothy. In those ten years, he's grown to rely on him and trust him in in really unusual ways. In fact, he says this in Philippians. Also chapter 2, he says, I have no one else like Timothy. In fact, there's nobody in Paul's life. This is a massive statement, really a huge encouragement to somebody like Timothy. There's no one like Timothy who's as selfless and full of faith, who genuinely cares about other people, and he wants to send Timothy in his place to be Paul's proxy to visit the people of Philippi, Paul's son in the faith. Now, this relationship, while it's unique and powerful, and why Paul, he probably poured into Timothy time and time after again and helped develop his faith, Paul knows that Timothy's faith did not come from Paul. It came from someone else. So there's two other letters in our New Testament, First and Second Timothy. They're written by Paul, and they're written to Timothy as he's doing this pastor work and growing up. Paul's trying to teach him and train him. And here's what Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, Timothy, I recall your tears, and I long to see you. So you can just feel the intimacy of their relationship and their friendship. They were dependent on one another. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And then he says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Lois, probably Eunice's mother. Um, this is the, the guess that we're making. Could have been the, fa- the paternal grandmother, we don't know. But odds are at this point in time in his life, Timothy's father had passed away, which is at least part of the reason why Paul would call him his son in the faith. His dad was a Greek, and so when Timothy was born, they had to make a decision, how are we going to raise them? And it was a bit of a combination between Jewish life and Greek life. Lois and Eunice transferred their faith into their son, Timothy son and grandson. And he says, I'm reminded of the sincere faith, first live in your grandmother and also in your mother, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul knows that Timothy came by his faith because of those in his family. Not because he figured it out or because he was smart or because he was wise. Of course, all these things come by the power of the Spirit. But initially, Timothy comes by his faith because there are people in his family that have decided, we're gonna plant this seed in him. We're going to help him understand who God is, why he's here, why the world spins the way it does, what your purpose and what your role in life is. And one of the questions that you ought to just sort of ponder on this Mother's Day and think through just a little bit is this one. Who shaped and inspired your faith? You are a believer, odds are, if you're listening, or at least you're considering becoming a believer or maybe testing out the waters of faith, or maybe you have been decades deep into a walk with Jesus. And if you believe, then that faith and that belief was sowed into your life and sowed into your heart by someone else. Rare is the person that opens up the Bible on their own if it isn't handed to them by somebody else or if they aren't taught by someone else. If you believe, odds are, somebody decided to love you enough to teach you about who God is and who Jesus is, why you're here, the purpose for you even drawing breath on any given day. What I'm saying is that you didn't get here alone. You got here because somebody cared enough about you. Just like in Timothy's life, his mom and his grandmother. And then Paul poured into his life. So who is it that shaped and inspired your faith? Who would you give credit to? As soon as you saw this question on the screen, whose name came to mind? Now, to be sure, most of us outgrow the faith of our childhood to some degree and we begin to form our own understanding of who God is and we cling to much of what is precious and dear and core to Christian faith and maybe set aside other stuff that was unnecessary or now is extra baggage. But the idea that Jesus is God's son and that we are here on his behalf to do his mission and do his work, this remains core to most of our faith. So who is it that helped you understand that from the very beginning? You know what you ought to do today? You ought to, if they're still alive, you ought to thank them. You ought to reach out, shoot them a text, give them a phone call, a little FaceTime. You ought to express your gratitude to them and let them know that you understand that the faith that you carry with you is a result of them sowing seed into your life that's now come to fruition, the good fruit of a life of faith. But then we also are reminded when we think about this, that we're here because of someone else, that faith only lives because you and I decide to sow faith into somebody else's life. Now, to be sure, God's kingdom, it's gonna go on with or without us. But it can be strengthened, it can grow even stronger if you and I are willing to say to others, this is who Jesus is, this is how he created us, this is why we're here, and we sow this faith into somebody else. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it is somebody in your own family. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's just your children that you're focused in on deciding, I'm going to be sure to sow faith into their life, into their world. It could be the most important thing you ever do. It's not something you accomplish or a company you build, but it's somebody that you raise to know and love Jesus. And so we stand at a crossroads. We're in between. We have people to thank. And we have seeds to sow. We have a heritage to remember in our past, and we have a future to be concerned about, knowing that it's in God's hands, but that He will use us the same way that God used Paul and Timothy's life to shape him, to help him grow. So, to be a faithful witness means that we'll shape and inspire somebody else's faith. Now, we wouldn't presume to do that, but God will use us in these ways. So Timothy's one of these key relationships in Paul's life, Philippians 2 talks about. Paul also writes about another gentleman. He says, meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus. All right, it's a mouthful. It's a big name. One of you need to pick this for your next offspring. I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, Paul calls him, a co-worker and a fellow soldier. Timothy is nearby in Rome But the Philippian church had heard about Paul's hardship in the prison, and they said, here's the deal. We're going to send one of our own, and we're going to take a gift, a financial gift, and some encouragement, probably some very specific notes or words from Epaphroditus from his friends in, in the Philippi city, all the way to Rome, where Paul is. And Epaphroditus came. And he almost died. He got sick. The people, his friends back home heard about it. They're worried. They're praying. And now he's this deep friend of Paul's. He's a true brother, Paul calls him. As I'm reading Philippians chapter two, this is the question that struck me about your own life right now and what you're going through. Who are you leaning on during this challenging time? Who is it that has come alongside you that you wouldn't be sane without? I mean, when Paul speaks of Timothy in this passage, he says, I have no one like him. There is nobody like Timothy. Who's like that to you? Who comes alongside you the way Paul and Timothy leaned on each other? And then, of course, you just read about Epaphroditus. Paul says he's a, he's a true brother. I mean, this, this man is a, is a co-worker. He has helped me in a time in need. So who is it? Who is that for you? Paul needed this help. And he even describes the depth of his need. In Roman prisons, they didn't uh, bring you three meals a day. They didn't, the Romans didn't cook for you and bring you stuff. They threw you in a hole in the ground, often chained you to guards, and left you there. If you were to be taken care of, that was left to friends or family or even some local humanitarians, some followers of Jesus that would come and take care of prisoners. You remember what Jesus said, that you treat the least of these the way you treat me. And I was in prison, you came to see me. The Roman prison system, of course, was in everybody's mind when Jesus said this. And so Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He's awaiting trial, possibly execution. So the only way he's going to eat is if Timothy helps and if Epaphroditus brings a gift, and if they all rally around him and become his family. And so Paul says, I was in need, and I leaned on them. We're better together And you will not make it through this pandemic alone. In fact, you're probably wondering at times, will you make it anyway? But who is it that you're leaning on during this time? Who's keeping you sane? Who's reminding you of what matters? Who's helping you find equilibrium when you feel like you're losing control of things every day? Who's reminding you not to lose the plot in the middle of your life? As you find yourself pressured and pushed, questions, uncertainty, as things begin to open up and we see our culture fracture even more between those who think that, oh my goodness, if the economy goes, we're going to be worse off. And others who feel like, how could we value that above the the priceless commodity of human life? And we see anger and all of this deeply divide who we are, not just as a country, but as followers of Christ. And so who is it that you're leaning on during this time? My guess is is that the relationships that you're leaning on were already in place before the lockdown began, before the, the threat of the coronavirus began to really show itself. And so there's somebody that you ought to thank as well today or remind them that you're there for them the way they have been for you. We are better together. When you read Philippians chapter 2 and really the whole letter, it's pretty clear that as independent as Paul was, as strong-headed as he could be, he still needed Timothy and Epaphroditus to make it through. Who do you need? Who's leaning on you? How are you building community during this time by meeting the needs of others? Because when this is over, what's going to be left are the people that matter most to you and those that you have built deepening friendships because you leaned upon one another, true brothers, true sisters, will say, like Paul said of Timothy, I have no one like them. On this Mother's Day, it could be that you're thanking a family member. It could be that you're reaching out to a neighbor to say, thanks for checking in on me. I really appreciate it. It's meant the world to me. When we express gratitude like this, something shifts in our heart. And so those two questions I hope you carry with you today. Who's inspired my faith? Whose faith am I inspiring? And who am I leaning on? And really, who's leaning on me through all of this? So there's one little nugget of scripture in this passage of Philippians chapter two that, uh, boy, it'd just be a, a mistake for us to push past it. And it feels almost cruel to put it on the screen during this this pandemic while we're dealing with so much and and stress is kind of pushing in on us. But it just happens to be where we are in Philippians chapter two. Here's one of the little nuggets of advice, this, this sort of mandate that Paul lays down for followers of Jesus. Take a look. Do everything without complaining and arguing. So, how's that going for you? How's it working? Just take a pause. You just grade yourself. Just, just a minute. Just take a minute and give yourself a grade. Now, don't do the pass-fail thing. All right, that's too easy. Just go ahead and use a full scale. Now, how many of you right now, when you see this on the screen, you think about this passage? Very simple, very plain. How many of you thought of somebody that needs this verse more than you do? Okay, so that's a problem a little bit. So we found ways to not just apply it to ourselves, but apply it to other people very extensively. So read it again. Do everything without complaining, in arguing. Words to live by. Now, just for a moment, let that sting and let that settle in. You probably had some uh, time this week, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever day it was, when this didn't go so well for you, when you found yourself... Uh, feeling like maybe you even pre-read a little bit. You get the e-news and you read ahead where we're going for the message. could be that you read this and you thought, well, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever read. I can't even believe he would say that. I'm sure Paul complained a little bit. I mean, he's in prison, and so maybe you run down this trail in terms of your rationale and your excuse or justification for some sort of behavior, do everything without complaining, arguing. I don't know that I've ever lived that out in one single day of my life, and yet Paul just lays it out there as... The way that followers of Jesus are supposed to operate in the context of their life. Just Hold on to that for just a moment. And let me help you frame this in a little bit different way. Most of us, we view the moral and the ethical commands of Scripture in the wrong way. And it's true for this. It's true for really any moral or ethical command in Scripture. And we see it as the end or as the goal, meaning when Paul says this, this is the goal. This is going to seem a little obvious to you, but stay with me. This is the goal. I need to do everything without complaining or arguing. And if I've hit that goal, then I've done well. So you've graded yourself maybe over the last week or a couple of weeks. And so you got a C, you got a B, you got a D. Maybe you just all out failed. Let's just own it. And we see these sort of moral and ethical commands, which you could list many of, right? Just think of the Ten Commandments. I shall not lie, shall not steal, shall not kill, commit adultery, bear false witness. We can go down the list. In fact, there's 600-some commands that the Jews were intended to live by in the Old Testament. We see all of the moral and ethical commands in Scripture as the end goal. As, okay, checkbox, got that one, took care of that. How did I do today? What's my goal then for tomorrow? My goal is to do what? Better. That's right. I want to do a little better. Sometimes we do better, sometimes we do worse. And along with that comes maybe shame or self-recrimination, whatever kind of tool you use to help you inspire yourself to do better. This view of something like this, this scripture, when you come across it, it pokes at us. And it keeps us moving away from scripture. Because when we read it, we feel like, well, failure We can't do this. We can't accomplish it. Why would I want to even hold that out as a goal? Because every day I'm going to fall short. Every day I'm going to find myself wondering how did I end up doing the same yelling thing I did with the kids that I did yesterday and the day before. In this view, moral and ethical commands are the end or the goal. The view says that good behavior is always the goal. And if you have ever felt like you are never good enough, then you have this view of Scripture that the moral and ethical commands that are laid out in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's just as many in the New Testament. You can run down the list. Paul has a ton. Jesus gives them over and over again. If the goal is good behavior, or in our case we'll say better behavior, then you will always feel like you're not Good enough. And during something like this pandemic, where we're shoved into a lifestyle or a season where everything is upended, control is out the window, and certainty is up for grabs, then all sorts of behaviors show up that you didn't even know you had. And so you're finding yourself short-tempered or angry or sullen or depressed, and all of these things that don't sound very much like behaviors that Christians ought to engage in, they're showing up in spades and we feel like complete failures. When we have this view that this is the goal, the goal is for me not to complain. The goal is for me not to argue. That's what Paul said, so that's what I'm going to do. When we have this view of the moral and ethical commands of Scripture, we find ourselves driven from God, away from him, and not to him. And when we do that, we have misunderstood the basic nature of the gospel. And Paul makes it clear throughout his letters. Even though he gives us lots of commands just like this, he also gives us the foundation and the overarching understanding of what the gospel of grace is all about. So to understand the gospel of grace, you have to understand the purpose and the point of the law. Here's what Paul says about the law. We're going to hop around just a bit to make a point and then bring us back right here when we get ready to finish. Galatians chapter 3 says this, therefore, Paul gives us a, a clue about what the law is for. The law has become, what, our tutor to lead us to Christ. How? What does that even mean? Paul says that the purpose of the law, the entire Torah, the Old Testament, first five books, all of the commands and everything therein, the purpose of the law was to lead us into a relationship with Christ. And the only way we're led in that direction is when we understand that we fall short of what is expected of us. I fall short and you fall short. And so the purpose of the law was to lead us to that place. That's all. That's the purpose of the law. And they're not just Old Testament. You mentioned the commands of Jesus. You heard him say over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not be angry. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. And over and over and over again, Jesus takes the bar that the Old Testament set and he raises it even higher. We couldn't even live the Old Testament law, let alone the commands of Jesus And so what would be the point of all of the laws and the rules, like do not complain or argue about anything? This is the point. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The way Paul says it in the book of Romans, he says, look, I didn't even know it was wrong to covet until the law said do not covet. And then I found myself coveting all the time. What does that even do? Well, it takes me to a place where I know that I need a savior. That's the point of the law. And so when the law leads us to Christ, it doesn't take us to a place of, I must improve. I've missed the mark. I need to get better. It takes us to a place of surrender. And the difference is night and day. One keeps you stuck, unable to perform The other leads you to a place of transformation and love and acceptance and mercy. One drives you away from God time and time again. The other leads you to a place of union with Jesus. And when that happens, real change takes place. Here's a better way to explain it maybe. Look, when I focus on the law, I'm driven to improve behavior. It's all based on my effort. I failed today. I can't believe it. I mean, just one simple verse out of Philippians. I can't even live it. And then I find myself deciding I'm going to do better tomorrow. And I focus on it so much that I feel like I didn't fail this much. I failed this much. And I find that my effort falls short over and over again. And so my question every day is, how can I do better? And failure then leads me to a place of self-condemnation. And self-condemnation draws me away from Jesus every time. So when my focus is on the law, I'm driven to improve behavior. But, and the but is so different. In fact, most believers I know don't understand the difference between these two statements. It has taken me decades as a follower of Jesus to even begin to tease out the truth here. When I rely on grace, I am driven to a place of surrender. I'm asking the question as I fail and realize my, my failure is evidence that I just need a savior so desperately to transform me from the inside out. My question isn't how can I do better? My question is who is Jesus to me? How am I relying on him? How do I draw closer to him? Not because the goal is to make me better, but because the goal is always my relationship with Jesus, Always. And when it's anything other than that, well, I end up a legalist. I end up a moralist, which describes almost every teacher of the law that Jesus interacted with and many people who claim to be followers of Jesus today. So when I rely on grace, I'm drawn to surrender. The purpose of the law leads me to a need for Jesus. So I have this self-awareness. I'm not afraid of asking the question, how did I fail? Because it doesn't lead me to a place of self-recrimination or shame. It leads me to a place of surrender to Jesus. I move toward him as a result. Listen to the powerful words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. But now, by dying to what once bound us, what once bound us, it was the law. That's the law. The law once bound us. We were bound to live by it. We were, it was declared that we had to measure up to the perfection of the law. We have been released from the law. Don't miss it. Really big deal that Paul, who is a Jew among Jews, he would say that we have been released from the law. Does that mean that you can murder? No, you can't murder. There's still no murder. Look, if you're living at home in the pandemic with your seven kids, Listen close. There's still no murder, okay? There's no murder. We're released from the law, the requirements of the law, that we would live by the law so that we serve in the... And if you had a Bible open and you had a pen handy, I would underline and circle it, in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What does the law do? It drives us to perform, focus on behavior, And shame drives us further from God. What's the new way of the Spirit? It's understanding that we do not have a righteousness of our own. That even on our best day, our righteousness is a filthy rag before God. The righteousness we've been given is the perfect life, the sinless life of Jesus. And because we have that righteousness, we can follow the new way of the Spirit. And so our coming up short... Well, it doesn't lead us to trying harder. It leads us to a more deeper surrender. And so when we come across a verse like this that says, look, do everything without complaining or arguing, we read that and we immediately know, well, yesterday was filled with failure. Tomorrow will be too. But if I can surrender to Jesus, when I can pay attention to how I'm falling short, then the question I ask is where is Jesus in this failure? Where am I not trusting him? What am I stressed about? What caused me to behave this way? I don't ask that question so I can behave better. That's the means to an end. The end is always your relationship with Jesus and union with him. And when I draw close to him in that way, my questions lead me into deeper intimacy with Christ. It's true. This pandemic is pushing me, maybe you as well, maybe everyone in your family to their very limits. It's exposing places where we don't trust God. It's showing in our own hearts where we are willing and the links we'll go to to grab back control of our life. And if we own that and admit that, while we know that we have the righteousness of Christ, well, it doesn't lead me away from God. It leads me to a place of deeper Surrender. Full union with Christ. And that's what he wants. And he tells us how this even works. The verse that happens right before Philippians 2.14, here's what it says. He says this, Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. What does he mean? He's saying, The hard work of living out the gospel is not trying to do better. It's always submitting, surrendering to God, obeying him with deep reverence and fear. When we do that, it is about surrender. The hardest work you will ever do in your walk with Jesus is giving control to God and surrendering to him. Let your coming up short always be a tutor that leads you into the arms of Jesus. Always. And then he says this. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's not about you anyway. None of it's about you. It's about God's love for us, his providence in our life. He gives us the desire to want to be like Jesus and he gives us the power. How does that come? By our own effort? No, no, no. It comes from the hand of God. It comes when we open our hands and surrender our life to him. So the question I want you to ask as I lead you through a time of prayer is this. What is it in your life where you need to acknowledge this truth and surrender more fully to God? Is it giving up control? Is it deciding that you will no longer try to control others with the way that you manipulate them through what you desire out of behavior in your home or your family or your workplace? what do you need to relinquish to find yourself more fully surrendered? For some of you, it is beginning to believe the truth that your righteousness is not your own, that God's righteousness has completely covered you and that you can come to him open-handed, pure and blameless. That's what the death of Jesus has done for us, brought us into a place of forgiveness and grace and mercy. So may all of our efforts that we put forth And our walk with God this week be about surrender and not our own effort to make our life go the way we wish it would. Let me pray with you. Lord, we ask in these moments that you will guide us through an understanding of Scripture that will change how we view every command, every moral and ethical expectation, whether it's spoken in the Old Testament or by the very mouth of Jesus or from Paul's hand as he wrote these letters. And we pray, Lord, that we would never take on the yoke of slavery that was intended not to be the law or even the new way of the Spirit, that the yoke of slavery that we've taken on, we would set it aside and pursue a relationship with you only in the new way of the Spirit. And Lord, as we do that, we ask that you would help us to love the way you love, knowing that we're accepted and welcomed by you into your family. Lord, we ask knowing that you will walk through this with us, that you will give us the strength that we need. We love you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray.